All right, take your Bibles, and tonight what we're going to do is over the last few weeks, we've kind of gone in-depth into some verses, into some places, and we're going to continue that tonight. We're going to go in-depth tonight in the book of Daniel. All right, so Daniel chapter 1. Now, obviously, we're not going to go in-depth in the entire book of Daniel because we would be here a little while, all right? I want to take, though, the first chapter of Daniel and kind of use it to discuss the theme of Daniel and the understanding of it. Now, this is not something that's unbeknownst to us. We, we discussed it a little while ago, but I, I want to kind of look at it in a different way. And uh, we're going to look at the story of a guy that where is really well known, but sometimes the key to the story is not as well known. Now, here's what I want you to do, all right? Whoever you're sitting around, wherever you are, most of us know the story of Daniel, okay? I want you to turn to the person around you or the people around you, and I want you to give the theme of Daniel in one sentence. Now, last week, I only gave you five words. You can have more than five words, but only one sentence. Now, I don't believe in run-on sentences either. Okay? I want short, concise, to-the-point sentences. So, what the theme of Daniel is. All right, go. Right now, once you do that, I want you to tell your favorite story from Daniel. Daniel's one of those Sunday school, children's Sunday school teachers' dreams. There's all kinds of good stories in there. So tell your favorite story from Daniel. All right, now here's what I want you to do. We're kind of doing this in reverse order, okay? If you're a good teacher, what you would do is you'd take people from the small to the big, but I want to go from the big to the small, okay? Thinking of your favorite story, I want you to tell the person around you what you think the theme of that particular story is. And it may be the same thing you had for the whole book, or it may be different. What do you think the theme of that particular story is? All right, somebody tell me your favorite story. What's your favorite story in Daniel? Lion's Den. How many of you it's the Lion's Den? couple of you, all right? Back in the back, I saw that hand, Alan, back there. What? Somebody else, favorite story in Daniel? The furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and a bed we go, all right? Yeah, we just know what it says there about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all right? How many of you, the fiery furnace is yours? Let me see, all right? Somebody else, you have a different one? Clean food. I can't believe the Juice Plus Masters there are the clean food people, all right? You clean food too, or you got a different one? Okay, is that what you were going to say, Miss Shirley? The ninth chapter. They broke the rules up here. They didn't do a story. They did prayer. A prayer in chapter 9. So. All right, so here's the thing. If you grew up in Christian home or Sunday school or you've been around church... You know the stories of Daniel. Now, I'm not talking about the, the, the stories we don't understand yet, the 70 plus 7 the years and a half, all that. I'm talking about his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, they would not bow down for an idol, and they got thrown into a fiery furnace, and the result of it was the fiery furnace, God protected them, came out alive, right? The story of Daniel. And the lion's den. And as I heard it as a kid, I remember thinking this strapping young man was going to 
defiantly continue to pray and they weren't going to stop him and he got thrown into the lion's den. When you read it, by the time we get to that, he's probably more of a grandpa than a strapping young man. And at that point, he obeys God and says, I'm not going to make a public compromise. And they take him away. They put him in a den of lion's dens and lo and behold, they're all on a diet. So at the end of the day, he comes out alive. Now, here's the point I picked up in Daniel when I was a kid. If you stand firm, refuse to bow down before an idol or the idols of the world, and just stand strong, God will pull you out of any terrible situation. If I stood for my faith, then even if I was thrown into a hungry den of lions, God would save me. But the fact of the matter is, if you look throughout history, how many people have been thrown into a fiery furnace and come out alive? I only know of three. How many people have been thrown into a hungry lion's den and come out alive? I only know of one. Now, I'm not saying God can't do that. I'm not saying that that's not part of it. But I think the point of Daniel is not about so much the results of those stories. They're absolutely true. They're absolutely correct. But the point of Daniel is a lesson about God, about his provision, about his salvation, and how we are to live no matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in. Because Daniel found himself in an incredibly dark place and time, and he was able to survive and thrive. In fact, the wickedest of places, in that place, he led three national revivals in his lifetime. Now, we don't think of Daniel as a revivalist. But he was. Today we're going to look at, because I believe Scripture is given to us for instruction, for rebuke, for correction, for training. How to live righteously, I believe Daniel teaches us that. Today we're only going to look at the first chapter. But the rest of the week, you might want to dig deeper. You might want to read through the book, through the lens of what we're going to talk about. So turn to Daniel chapter 1 and follow along with me. We'll walk through the passage, pointing out some things, and then we're going to come back. We're going to see how evil it was in Babylon. And it was evil. How deep the weeds Daniel was stuck in were. Then we're going to see the secrets of his influence. It's written all over the first chapter and the rest of his life and through the teachings of Jesus. So in chapter 1, we see this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and teach them the challenge, or excuse me, the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They would be trained for three years, and at the end of that time they were to serve in the king's courts. Among them, from the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief gave them different names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. 
Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official, yet he said to, the Dan- to Daniel, My lord, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid that what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner, you would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let's be given vegetables to eat and waters to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And at the end of that time, the king had said to present them. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, he found no one was equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. There's a key phrase I don't want us to miss right there in chapter 2. I mean, verse 2. And in the Holman Christian Standard, it says the word handed, but a better translation is the word gave. Now, we just read that whole chapter, and we know that it started with the Israelites being captured, the people of Judah being captured by the Babylonians. But if you look in verse 2, it says that the Lord is the one who gave. Now, if you are one that underlines in your Bible, that circles in your Bibles, right there at the beginning of verse 2, the Lord handed over or the Lord gave, I want you to circle that. Because what we've got is God's people being captured by a godless king. We have young men like Daniel and his buddies being kidnapped and taken to serve this godless king. And we have this godless king taking the holy vessels of God from the temple of God, carrying them to Shinar, where he puts them in the temple of his demon god as a display of the power of his god over the weak, impotent, powerless god of Israel, the god of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, our god. And yet, who does it say allows it? The Lord. The Lord gave. Here's what I find interesting, all right? Daniel doesn't begin the book by blaming other people. He doesn't go on a Facebook rant about how the government's taken the country away from Christian principles. He doesn't argue across the table with somebody about what's happening in the political or educational system in our country. He says we are in a circumstance and the Lord gave us to these people. He never thought that somebody else was in control. From the very beginning, Daniel wants us to understand and Daniel understood God's sovereign hand in the affairs of men. And it changes everything about the way he views and the way he responds to what happens to him and his people. Now, I want you to grasp how bizarre that would be to a Jewish reader. 
Because the vessels of God were considered to be incredibly holy. You don't mess with them. There's a story when the children of Israel were coming into the promised land in the book of Joshua. God laid out the pattern. He said, when you capture the land, the first fruits, which is a biblical principle all the way through Scripture, the first fruits belong to God. And after that, you're stewards of my stuff. Enjoy it. So they would take all the spoils from the first city, give them to the Levites to put in the treasure of the temple. And after that, the spoils of all the rest of their victories would be theirs. Well, God made it so the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, right? They were able to get the best of the best. And they gave it to the Levites just as they were told. And he put it in the temple treasury. And they all did exactly like God said, except for a guy named Achan. Y'all remember Achan? My Achan breaking heart. That's a bad pun. All right. He decided it was just one little indiscretion. He looked at something. Man, that's so beautiful. I've got to have it. So he took one of the things devoted to God. And what did he do with it? He hid it under his tent. Now, the children of Israel next wanted to capture a tiny little town. It was just a little speck on the map. And so they didn't think we need to send the whole army. They just sent a few people up to Ai. They sent a small little group there. Anybody remember what happened? Destroyed. Routed. They come running back. They don't know what's going on. Joshua tears all of his garments. He gets on the ground. And God says, get up. There is sin in the camp. Long story short, God says, you're not winning another battle till you take care of it. And they take care of it. Remember what happened? They cast lots. They find out who it is. They find him and they do what? They kill him and his family. Now, I got lots of questions. Okay. When you read through the Bible, sometimes you go, man, I don't understand that whole killing the whole family thing. In fact, I got a notebook of things that when I get to heaven, I'm probably going to ask God about. Right? And that's one of them. But here's the point of that whole story. You don't mess with God's stuff. Now, a little bit later, they get the Ark of the Covenant. You weren't supposed to touch it. You weren't supposed to do anything with it. And they're on a journey one day. And as they're on the journey, they're carrying the ark. And what happens? Somebody stumbles, the ark starts to fall. What does somebody do? Touches it. What happens? As it's falling, he grabs it. It's natural reaction. It's falling. You stop it. You pick it up. He dies. The point of the story? You don't mess with God's stuff. And yet, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing here? He's taking God's stuff. He's putting it in his temple below his God, saying it's inferior to us. And who gave the victory? The Lord gave. So he takes these guys. He's going to teach them all about the society. And they're going to do the Chaldean language, and a new language, and grasp how hard that would be. This is not like uh, Rosetta Stone, or it's not like you taking Spanish in high school. This is intensive course in something completely different. The foreignness of one nation, completely different. I mean, it, they would have been closer together than the nations we are close to, but it would have been culturally farther apart. What, what do you think they're going to teach them about? Besides the language, what do you think they're going to teach them? About their gods, right? They were astrologers. They were people that looked at the stars and came up with stuff. They were occultish people. They 
studied and worshipped gods that were not the Lord God. And so for three years, he and his buddies were supposed to study astrology and the occult so they could prepare to enter the service of their evil king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And what does it say? It says they changed their names. Right? And here's the interesting thing about that. When you read what their names are changed to, Daniel's name, when it was Daniel, means God is my judge. Belshazzar means a prince of Bel. It'd be like somebody today whose name is follower of Christ or Christian having their name suddenly changed to Satan's prince. So when you catch that little verse, his name changed. Oh, that's not a big deal. That's a huge deal. Don't you remember that as we go along? Now, in verse 8, we see that God gave him favor, so the bad guys liked him. That's important later as well. Here's what's amazing to me. I know where I live. I know our church. I know our country. I know the place we live around. Can you imagine the response if we were captured by a godless foreign nation, had our names changed and put in a school where we learned their customs and religion for three years? Do you think our response would be one that would earn favor with those around us? I think if I were Daniel, I might go, you don't understand who my God is. You don't know how I live. Almost like there's a chip on our shoulder. Here's what I love about the attitude we see from Daniel, though. Is he dealt in respectfulness the entire time. He asked if he could be allowed to eat something different. He didn't demand it. He said, listen, I I would prefer this. And the guy said, I can't do that. It's my neck on the line. He says, I understand that. If you would just test us. If you would allow us the opportunity. Can I tell you something? Just as an aside. We live in a country that does seem to be moving farther and farther away from basic biblical principles. But can I tell you as believers, we are way too sensitive and defensive about that. We are not responding in a way that makes us look good. We get mad and we get fired up and we start yelling and we start saying, why aren't we yelling at more people about more things, about more problems? Instead of respectfully engaging in discussion and living a life that is winsome. Verse 10, Daniel politely had asked if they could do this. And the chief of the eunuch says, you know, I fear the Lord. I really like you, Daniel, but you need to understand that this place is ruthless. They don't care about your life. King doesn't care about you, and why should he? If he sees that you're in worse conditions than the youths of your own age with that's already here, he's not going to do anything to help you. I want you to look at this. It's one of my favorite things about the Old Testament. It says, they were better in appearance and fatter. Now, I want us to to stop for just a minute, okay? little biblical background here. The bigger you were, the better you looked. Okay? Fat was in. Because it showed what? What did it show if you were fat? You were healthy. You had plenty of food. Back then, if you were skinny, it meant you were poor. You didn't have anything. 
So people walked around saying, I am double X and proud of it. I look good today. Some might want to circle that verse and put it up there. They look better and fatter, all right? God gave them understanding. Here's what's crazy to me. Remember, what were they being schooled in? Let's remind ourselves. The Chaldean language, astrology, and the occult. Where did they come out in their class? The top. Now, we read that and we think, oh, valedictorian, they knew their math and science. No. That meant they knew the most about the religion that they did not believe. They got put in a classroom where their God was not taught and another religion was, and it didn't stop them from doing the best they could do. In fact, it says, if He came to them, they knew how much? Ten times. Now, here's what I want to do for a moment. Okay, I've walked through the past, we've looked at some of the things, but I want to touch us in our heart for a couple of minutes. In particular, what kind of place are we talking about Daniel's in? And I think we lose sometimes how evil Babylon was. I can tell you that if there's a conversation in heaven today about evil, the angels are not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not talking about Nazi Germany. They're not talking about Las Vegas. They don't know those places like they know Babylon. Now, how do I know that? Well, look, you don't have to look. But in Revelation 18, that's kind of towards the end of the Bible, right? Revelation 18, when it says it's over, injustice is going to be dealt with. Grace and justice are going to reach their fulfillment. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Why? Why Babylon? Because, according to what we can tell, it was the worst of the worst in all of human history. It is the biblical personification of Satan, of evil. So much so that it doesn't exist now, and according to Scripture, won't be rebuilt. And with all of these centuries and millennia having passed, still the most evil thing that they can think of when crying out, Thank you, Jesus, you're coming back, is fallen, is Babylon. Now, how bad was Nebuchadnezzar? I've looked, and I can tell you this. He's bad. You know how every now and then our local officials or city officials or national government or somebody will fund some area? Maybe it's the arts. And one thing about artistic creativity is it's all about no boundaries and no limits. And they'll fund something to the ends of not only be offensive to Christian, but absolutely mocking to God. And goodness, when that happens, it's all over the blogs. It's all over the web. It's all over the airways. Fundraising letters. Things are spent. The congressmen are called. Nebuchadnezzar was a man that took the devoted things of God. The most sacred things of Israel. And displayed them as a piece to show in his temple that he had defeated God Almighty. He mocked God as being weaker than his God. That's who Nebuchadnezzar was. And and listen, we've all seen bad decisions, right? Our governors, our courts, our legislator, our school boards, our Dog catchers, I don't know who. We've seen bad decisions, right? Some of these decisions are bad. I mean, we just look and go, what are they thinking? But as bad as some of their decisions have been, none of them have ever brought our culture to the point where astrology and the occult are the government-sponsored religion and the core curriculum of the schools. That's Babylon. And yet Daniel thrived in it. Influenced it. Let revivals for our Lord in that. 
Now, now, how tough was it on Daniel? How big was the obstacle? How big are the weeds he's in? Well, here's what we think about Daniel. Some of what we know from Scripture and what we can assume from the practices in Scripture of that day is that he was kidnapped, had his name changed to honor the God that was opposed to his God, and probably castrated. That's what you call a bad week. Right? I mean, you know, kind of looking like yeah, that's not bad. That's bad. All right? I mean, we saw the kidnapped, right? He was taken from his home. We, we've seen the name changes. Some of you are like, um, <laughs> I don't know that we need to talk about it, but I, I didn't see that castrated thing. We, don't, we didn't teach that to our third graders last week. Well, here's the thing. They don't explicitly say it in Scripture, but I saw several places that confirm that they imply it. In Jewish culture... It was important for people to have kids, especially sons. And part of it was to feel legacy, part of the care of the promise of God. There were a whole bunch of reasons. But there was one just very mundane, very practical reason. You needed sons to support you when you got old. You needed people to take care of what you were doing. They didn't have Medicare or Social Security. You had no sons. Tough luck. And that's why in the Old Testament, it's always about lineage and who has children. And sometimes it's very important, the genealogy of Jesus, the promise of Abraham. But there's a whole bunch of other passages where uh, you, you say, I don't really care. I don't know how to pronounce all these names. Why are they telling me who begat who and why is all that there? Because it's real books written to real people in real history and it mattered to them. And here's what we see about Daniel. In his entire life, there in Babylon, there's never a mention of a wife or a son or a child. That's incredibly rare in the Jewish mindset. To not mention that if you had that. I mean, today, there are couples that decide they don't want children. But then, that wasn't a decision. Now, here's also the thing that happened. Back then, kings had their wife, and then they usually had a harem. And if you were an older, aging king, and you brought in the best-looking men from another country around your Young harem, kings in that day were very concerned about what might transpire. And so one of the modern practices when they brought men into their court was to make sure nothing could. And Daniel is in the king's court for life. Here's another thing. Not just name changed, kidnapped, probably castrated. He was forced to study the occult and serve an evil and godless king. Not only the three-year class in the occult, but he was serving the enemy of his people. And he served him so well, he kept getting promoted. You realize you don't do promotions when you do a bad job, right? Well, most places. I don't know how evil your workplace is, was, family, city, community, or country. Whatever you think, however bad you think it is, Babylon beats it. And here's what's amazing. In the midst of that, Daniel still had influence. So the question is, how did he do it? Now, I'll give you three words today about how Daniel influenced this evil nation. And the first one is, he was a man of hope. Now, a better word might be optimism because we use the word hope like I hope I get that. I just sit around and wish it would happen. I hope, I hope, I hope. The word hope in a biblical sense means I know, I know, I know. 
It's the confidence. It's the knowing. It's the optimism of what the Lord has done and will do. So Daniel is a man of optimism. So right in the middle of this everything breaking loose, he says, God is the one that gave Jehoiakim. He understood the hand of God. It's this way that even in Babylon, he understood that God was in control, that he always will be. And he knew that. He knew that sometimes a short-term success of the wicked is God's will. Or sometimes things happen that we don't understand and we can ask Him, but we knew and can know that God is always involved. And so He's somebody that had hope. I read this week a statement that says, if we want to influence our world, we have no choice but to be optimistic people. Now, I don't mean that there's never a place for despair. I don't mean there's never a place for sorrow. I mean, Jesus cried. Jesus wept. When he looked at the cross, sweat his, it was coming out of him like drops of blood. Literal blood was coming out. The Bible tells us to weep with those who weep. The Bible says all of that. And I'm sure Daniel wasn't just, you know, skipping along, singing a happy tune, joyous all the time, smiling. But he was optimistic. Panic and despair are never from God. Now, we know that God is in control. I mean, the Bible confirms in us at the end of the book and this collection of books at the very last one, there is this book that reminds us that in the end, God wins. Amen? That it's all over. God takes care of it. And, you know, people, our youth right now are studying the book of Revelation because... One of our youth who's graduating asked Jeff to do a series on Revelation before she graduated. She graduates in May. So Jeff put it off as long as he could. He made a promise to her. And you know, I know, here's what Jeff's doing up there. He's a brave man. Y'all realize that? Jeff Kelly's a brave man. He sends them to small group when they get there and lets them come up with whatever questions they want to come up with from the passage they read that week. I wouldn't do that with y'all. Right? Then they ask. And here's what I can guarantee you the questions are going to be. Well, who's the Antichrist? Well, where's the rapture? What does that number 666 mean? And the truthful answer is when they ask those kind of questions, Jeff is going to give them some sort of answer, but we don't know for sure. We don't. As one pastor says, I can make guesses But frankly, I'm on the welcoming committee, not the programming committee. We're the ones welcoming the Lord. We're not the ones setting the agenda. Amen. But here's the thing. If you look at the book, it's kind of like reading the last chapter of a book before you even get to the middle. Anybody ever read the last page of a book? No, no, I don't do that. It's okay in the Bible. Who does that? Let me see your hand so I can judge you. All right, there we go. I'm not one that reads the last page of my book. All right. I don't have to know how it ends. Now, we go to a movie sometimes and if it gets particularly kind of challenging in the movie, stressful, my wife will get online in the movie theater and read what happens at the end of the movie. Right, Susan? Yes, she will. Okay. What? Yeah, I know. Because she's an end-of-the-book person. Well, here's the thing. The Bible, it's perfectly okay to read the end of the book. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to know the end because the end gives us hope today. Right? If we follow Jesus, whether you're in the front, in the middle, or the very back, 
You are following Him to victory. All the wrongs will be made right. The gates of hell cannot hold us back. And we want to be used of God to have influence. The world we rub shoulders with must see our optimism. Can I tell you that in the world in which we live today, optimism is a rare trait. People are more concerned, more worried, think the country's going in a terrible direction, don't think anything good's going to happen. We're all headed to somewhere in a handbasket. Christians, non-Christians, political people, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Green Party, you poll them, excitement and optimism is going at about a 35% rate. Now, if you want to know a way to stand out in a culture of negativity, you be optimistic. That's not realistic, Pastor. Well, it is when you know the end. It's the most realistic you can be. And like I said, I'm not saying that there aren't tough times. Now, I, I looked at the pictures of Randy's home. And man, it's tough. It's tough. Man of God serving the Lord in a church. All things, good things ought to be happening. And here's the thing. Good things are happening right now as people are in an amazing way responding. And I mean we walk through life saying tough times aren't here. But it means that we're always optimistic because of the hope in Jesus Christ. I've met a lot of Christians that don't give that kind of attitude. Amen? I'm not naming any names because I'm protecting the guilty. But you've met them and maybe you've been them. And the truth is that sometimes we all get a little discouraged. Daniel never gets discouraged. Never. His friends don't get discouraged. It is amazing to me when they stand at the fiery furnace and they say, you go ahead and throw us in. The God we serve will save us. But if He doesn't, we're going to praise Him anyways. That's faith. You've got to have hope. You've got to have humility. Here's what I love. Daniel shows humility and respect. Real humility is Jesus knowing where He came from, who He was, where He was going, taking a bowl, taking a cloth, washing the feet of His disciples, including the one who would betray Him. It's the Philippians putting the needs of interest of others as more important than you know. Everybody talks about servant leadership, and I love doing servant leadership, somebody said, as long as no one treats me like a servant. What Daniel did, and you'll find this through the entire book, real, genuine respect. For everyone, including the enemies of God. Now, here's an interesting thing. Because Nebuchadnezzar is going to get his. He, he thinks he's done all this on his own. He's looking around. Look at this kingdom that I built. My power. And God is like, it's over. You're over. And Daniel's going to get to deliver that message. Now, if I'm Daniel and I realize that Nebuchadnezzar's time is over and God says, you go tell him, I am marching into that place and saying, you're done. It's over. That's not what Daniel does. He goes in and he says, O oh, king, I wish it was anybody but you. That's a man that respects and loves the enemy of God. Jesus is more into winning over his enemies than taking them out. That's his heart. That's what the cross is. And if we're going to influence our world, they must see that our deepest goal is not to see God sick them. And our deepest self-image is not that we are God's pit bull 
or watchdog for poor little Jesus who needs us to help him out. But we are his followers, his servants, who have his agenda to win over the lost, not to see them wiped out. Daniel wanted Nebuchadnezzar won over, not wiped out, as bad as he was. And guess what? Nebuchadnezzar was won over. It would have never happened without humility. It would have never happened without respect. Daniel had this hope. He had this humility. And he had wisdom. He had one other thing. This amazing wisdom. Something I wish that I'd had more of as a follower of Jesus as I've grown up. Daniel knew when to pick his battles. Daniel picks his battles very carefully. Here, God had spoken absolutely, says, you can't eat this. So he politely says, hey, will you allow us to change it? No, okay, then how about a 10-day test? Will you accept that? But here's what I think is interesting. He doesn't throw a big fit when they change his name. I'm sure he didn't like it. But at that moment, he had already chosen to fight one battle. And he wasn't going to make a big mess about everything else. Daniel begins to use his wisdom in a way to influence his country. Here's a statement I read this week that I think is just so appropriate for for Daniel. The darker it gets, the more powerful the tiniest light becomes. There are a lot of nights when uh, everybody in the house is in bed before I am. I'm a little bit of a night owl. And a lot of nights when I go to bed, I go to bed, Susan's already asleep, the kids are already asleep, and I still want to read. And I have a Kindle, one of those that lights up in the night a little bit. It's not a very bright light. In fact, in the day, if you opened it up, I've got, I think I've got it right here. If I opened it up right here, most of you wouldn't even realize that it had a light on it at all because it doesn't look any different. But when the lights are out in the house, it's like this thing is a beacon. In fact, there are a lot of nights that I think it is way too bright. I want to wake Susan up. And so I'll get under the covers like a eight-year-old boy listening to the radio or something and read. Because it's just so bright in the darkness. The darker it gets, the brighter the tiniest light shines. We live in a world that does seem to be increasingly moving away from a God-centered understanding of the way we ought to live. But the way to combat that is not to be pessimistic and angry and proud. It's to be optimistic and to speak with respect and to use wisdom in how we talk. Daniel, my favorite scene in Daniel, and this is what we'll end with, is when he's thrown in the lion's den. And the king that did it, if you remember, really didn't want to do it. You remember that? And he comes there. And as he comes to the edge of the pit, he says to him, Oh, Daniel, please let it be that your God has saved you. And you, I I cannot think of a more convicting verse. What if the enemies of God in our country were so impressed by the way we lived that they say, I hope you're right. Because that's what the king says.
That's how you thrive in Babylon. Let's pray.